This is where our passage comes in. James spoke about all these things before, but here he asks the hard diagnostic questions to discern counterfeit faith from real faith. Then he shows us what genuine faith looks like. And then implicitly, he leaves us with the task of self-examination. So these are the three things we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at the diagnosis of counterfeit faith and two portraits of genuine faith. And then finally, we're going to end on self-examination. So let's start with the first one, how to diagnose counterfeit faith. In typical Eastern ancient fashion, James doesn't ask the questions to people directly. He doesn't come to us and say, is your faith gen genuine? This is actually rather useless. Instead, he invites us to consider a scenario, a kind of thought experiment to help us discern our own hearts. At the same time, the questions he does ask are rhetorical questions. He has no intention of letting us arrive at diverse conclusions as to what genuine faith looks like and what counterfeit faith looks like. He already has the answer because he writes the oracles of God and with the authority of the Holy Spirit, he's guiding the discussion to help us see what he already sees. So we're going to enter into this scenario as participants, not as outside observers. That's an essential orientation. James is talking to you and he's talking to me. And the scenario he's proposing from verses 14 through 16 goes like this. You're the central character in this little story and you see someone in need and all you have for them is words. They're hungry, they're poorly clothed and all you do is wish them peace. Now, mind you, praying peace for someone is the great blessing of scripture. You know your Bible back and forth. You know the Old Testament priestly ironic blessing in the book of Numbers in chapter, six, in chapter six that says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And you know the New Testament teaching that the work of Christ has brought us from being enemies of God to a state of reconciliation and peace with God. So for example, you know Romans 5, where Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This divine peace is no small matter. It represents the sum total of all of God's blessings to his people. It's neither a little nor a cheap thing to pray peace for someone. It is a great thing, but you stop there. You do nothing to work with God so that they can enjoy some of the benefits of that peace you speak so highly of. James ends this little story with the same rhetorical question he started with. What good is behaving in this manner? We know how he expects us to answer it, right? It is no good. But then he immediately, in verse 17, tells us what kind of faith is behind this lack of action. A dead kind a fruitless kind, the kind that Isaiah calls lip service, the same kind that Jesus criticized in the Pharisees repeatedly, but especially in Matthew 23 in the Sermon of the Woes. Jesus was very severe there. He says this, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do, so do and observe whatever they tell you, 
but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to, be hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. You would think that James would rest his case at this point. He just told us that if the only evidence that exists for your faith is what you say, then your faith is dead. You would think that is the end of it. But he doesn't, because he's anticipating pushback. You see, a person whose faith is dead is also spiritually blind and cannot discern their own heart. So James asks the, quest the question differently and takes another stab at their heart. Perhaps the Holy Spirit will awaken them this time. So in verse 18, James anticipates that his rhetorical opponent would say something like, some people have faith, other people have works, they're both good. Come on, James, don't be so judgmental. You don't know my heart. How dare you? Oh, the stench of resistance to the word of God. So unlike genuine faith. You see, a genuine believer is someone who is humbled before God. He doesn't push, we don't push back against scripture but we're humbled before it. When we come to the Bible, we don't just come for encouragement and for comfort, but we also come for correction. And we want the Bible to criticize our thoughts if we're true believers. We want the Bible to purify our motives and sanctify our hearts. And when we come across a passage, when a true believer comes across a passage that doesn't agree with him, he's flat on his face, seeking mercy from God so that his heart hardened would conform to the divine standard. He prays this with the psalmist, I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. It's a strange prayer, don't you think? How, how's God hiding his commandments? They're in the Bible. Anyone can read them. They are not hidden. Oh, but we can so easily glance over the Bible, what the Bible says without it getting into our hearts. He's actually praying against his own blind, blindness, against his own hardness of heart. Then he goes on to say, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. This is an intense passion to know how to live for God, a consuming passion. How do I live this life in a way that is pleasing to God? True believers never push back against what the scripture says, but they have a true desire to live it and obey it. But James's opponent is not like that. He asserts himself over against scripture. He has a different perspective on the matter and to him that settles it. What he's really saying is that all faith is the same. As long as I have the right thoughts in my mind, I have faith and that is good enough. The way I live is irrelevant to this discussion. Well, James will have none of this. He quickly points out two things in verses 18 and 19. The first of them is probably what you would expect if from James by now if you've gotten the gist of his argument. He says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James is saying, show, don't just tell. Without works, how do we know? Indeed, how do you know your faith is real? Works manifest faith. Does this sound repetitive? Remember the recursive way of communication we've been talking about? Um, James drives home the same point, but this time he has a new angle. And this is the second thing he says in verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Guess who's the same? Even the demons 
believe. This new angle is shocking. James really is not taking it easy, and he's pulling no punches here. If your faith is only in your head, you're exactly like demons. Demons know all the right things. They can stand in this pulpit and preach sound doctrine. They can teach classes in systematic theology, but they will never act on these truths. They will never show mercy to anybody, and they will perish despite this knowledge. Does that pierce your heart? I hope it does, because that's James' intention here. If, if you don't care for the needs of those around you, and if you show partiality to some people over others, and if you never visit those in affliction, if you mistreat your husband or your wife or you cheat on them, if you're selfish with your time and your money, and if someone looking at your life from the outside cannot tell whether you're a Christian or not, James is saying your faith lacks the vital signs of life. But if this doesn't pierce your heart, James is not done. He's going to take it one step further. He says that demons don't just believe, they shudder. They tremble. There is fear of God in them. They fear God's judgment. But if your faith is dead, you don't even respond like demons do. Unresponsive to the external stimuli of the Word of God could be a phrase that accurately describes this kind of condition. One that doesn't even live up to that of demons. Do you tremble when you think that there is a coming judgment? Does your heart sing when the grace of God, the cross of Christ, the love of the Father are mentioned? Or are these mere religious concepts to you that neither stir emotion nor elicit action? What are they? All right, so James is saying that your faith is genuine if you're, fair, if you're a fair and kind person. You're not partial, you care for those who are in need. Is, is that what he's saying? Because you really don't need any kind of faith to do these things, let alone Christian faith. Anybody can be kind, anybody can be fair, anybody can treat people well and care for those in need, and can be a faithful spouse or a conscientious worker. That's just morality. So to guard us from misunderstanding his point, James paints two in incredible pictures from the Old Testament of what genuine faith looks like. And his intention is that those would be standards for us to compare and test our faith against them. So let's look at these two portraits of genuine faith in action. In verse 20, James asks the person whom he calls a fool, actually a stubborn fool, who wants to establish his own views he asks him whether he still wants to be shown the deadness of the faith that is without evidence. Again, it's a rhetorical question. James will answer the question by painting these two portraits of living faith, Abraham and Rahab. Uh, you know your Old Testament. These are not people you typically mention in the same breath, given how different these people are. Um, Abraham is obviously a man, and Rahab is a woman. Abraham was not only a Jew, but the father of the Jewish nation and the father of all believers, according to the New Testament. Um, Rahab, on the other hand, was not a Jew. She was a Gentile whose people were enemies of God's people. Abraham is highly revered as such, and Rahab used to be a prostitute. These two people could not be any more different, right? Yet. James sees a similarity. There's something common that James sees in these two people. 
<clears throat> um, even the portraits he paints are kind of very different. If you look at the first portrait of Abraham in verse 21, you see an elderly man who's just built an altar, tied up his son, put him on the altar, and he has a knife in his raised hand, and he's ready to offer his son up as a sacrifice. And if you go to the portrait of Rahab in verse 25, you see a woman who lets in spies from another nation, and instead of alerting the authorities, she sneaks them out by another way. Even those two portraits seem so different. So what does James see in common? James tells us in verses 21, 24, and 25 that they were both justified by works, not by faith alone. This needs some unpacking because on the surface it seems to contradict the clear biblical teaching that we read elsewhere in the New Testament that justification is by faith alone. But first, let's do a bit of history. In the 16th century, the early reformers taught that justification is by faith alone, not by faith and works. And the church responded not only from church tradition, but also by quoting James 2.24, where it says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So it sounded as if the church at the time was right and the reformers were wrong, were wrong because it seems like James 2.24 is a decisive verse. You cannot be justified by faith alone. You need works. But this is a classic example of arriving at the wrong conclusion by lifting a verse out of its biblical context. So what does it mean to be justified by works and how are these works related to genuine faith? Well, to answer these questions, we're going to have to go back to the narratives in the Old Testament and have a look at them. And then we're going to look at a couple of passages in the New Testament that comments on those narratives. So let's go back to the book of Genesis. We, we know that the story of Abraham almost offering up Isaac is in Genesis 22. But if you go back seven more chapters to chapter 15, we read this in Genesis 15 from verse 5. And the Lord brought Abraham outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall, be, shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So God counted Abraham as righteous in chapter 15, way before he brought Isaac to the altar to offer him there. And, and this is exactly what, what kind of argument Paul uses in Romans 4 as evidence for justification by faith alone. So we read this in Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It seems like an outright contradiction. James is saying Abraham was justified by works, not by faith alone. And Paul is saying he was justified by faith alone without works. 
But it's only a contradiction if they mean the same thing by faith and works. Actually, they mean two very different things. To Paul, when he says faith, to him that equals genuine faith, saving faith. And works refers to the works of the Mosaic law. So for example, we read in Romans 3, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So when I read Romans or Galatians or Ephesians or any of the other letters by Paul, and I see the word faith, it almost always means genuine faith. Paul doesn't have in view the kind of double-minded, superficially religious person that James is dealing with here. Uh, but he's more concerned uh, with laying the foundation of how a person is justified or counted righteous before God. Um, and, and that is very clearly by faith alone. On the other hand, when James says faith, he really means a profession of faith. What we say with our mouths. It's the things that we confess and we hold to be true at the level of the mind, regardless of the heart and regardless of actions. So they use the words in very different ways. So this is why, for example, we read in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? It's only something the person says and does not have works. Can that faith save him? Notice these two words, says and that faith. When he says, says, He's referring only to something that people say, not something do. And in the last phrase, he says, can that faith, he means, can that kind of faith save him? What James is saying is that there is a kind of faith that is not genuine, that doesn't save, and it's only superficial. You can only find it in the person's words, not in their actions. So James really can be paraphrased here as, as if he were saying, what is the point of merely saying you believe in Christian truths? Can that kind of faith really save you? Of course it cannot. Also, when James says works, he doesn't simply mean good works or works of the law. He means acts of faith. To be sure, these include good works, but are necessarily much more than that. Uh, that's where Abraham and Rahab come in. You see, by our standards, Abraham offering up his son a man, an older man killing a young man, his son or not, that's a merciless man, that's murder. And also by our standards, what Rahab did is not exactly a good work. So, but the Bible calls these acts of faith. So we read in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Do you see this? By faith, he offered an act of faith. Well, faith in what? Faith in God's promises. God promised that he would give Abraham offspring not through any of his children, but through Isaac specifically. Um, so Abram's reasoning was something like this. God gave me and Sarah Isaac when we were so old, our bodies were functionally dead. So if I offer Isaac up to him, 
he is also able to raise him from the dead like he did with us. So Abram believed God for the resurrection of the dead and acted on it. Rahab too is said to have acted in faith. We read this in, also in Hebrews 11.31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. It's the same pattern again. By faith, she gave a friendly welcome. And just like Abraham, this is not what we would call a good work. She's wel welcoming foreign spies to the detriment of her own nation. But the Bible calls this faith. Here again, we must ask, faith in what? Faith in God's promise, just like Abraham. These two people are more similar than we think. And if we go to Joshua 2, we read this from her own lips. I know that the Lord has given you the land. That's her speaking to the spies. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. beneath. Hearing of the Lord's wonders as he led his people out of Egypt, she believed his promise to Abraham. She believed God as Lord of all and acted on it. Works that justify are acts of genuine faith. They flow out of faith rather, be an, rather than be an addition to it. They flow out of a heart that deeply believes that God is who he says he is and will do what he said he would do. I'll say this again. Works that justify flow out of a heart that deeply believes that God is who he says he is and will do what he said he would do. They're not mere acts of virtue, kindness, or mercy. They are radical, life-altering decisions by people whose ultimate confidence is in God and their supreme allegiance is to him alone. They justify in the sense that they are the visible fruit of justifying faith. So what is James saying to his opponent? What is he saying to us? He's saying this, look at the kind of thing people who have real faith do. Look how they stake all on the truthfulness of God's promises. But you won't even show a little mercy to those in need. How can you claim you have true faith? Your faith is a false one. Now that James has led us through the discussion, he doesn't expect us to sit there and be impressed by his coaching abilities, but he expects us to turn the question to ourselves and do some self-examination. Um, you see, an, a dead faith, an inactive faith, can look different in different people's lives. It, it shares this one aspect. It's superficial. It's only mental agreement. The person, the person says they accept the Christian doctrine is true, but otherwise it can look different to the point where you cannot tell that these people share a common faith. So here are some statements that I, would, that I will ask you to consider. Listen to each one and try to decide whether it describes you or not. If this describes you, then you really need to consider whether you have ever repented and came to Christ or not. So here's the first one, first statement. I am only a Christian because I was born into a Christian family. If I had been born into a different background, I wouldn't be a Christian today. Is that you? If that is you, that's actu that actually means you're in a good spot although your faith is not yet a saving faith. You have the benefit of knowing the truths of the faith and mentally agreeing to them. Now you have to take the next step, act on what you know. 
You know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, we don't honor God rightly by our lives. You know that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know all this. Well, the Bible says to you, if you know this, if you agree to this, then why haven't you done anything about it? The Bible is saying to you, now is a favorable time. Now is a time of salvation. Christ is calling you to come to him, to lay down your sins and receive the forgiveness and the eternal life he offers. Don't delay. Here's the second statement. My practice of religion is really because of the people I'm surrounded with most of the time. They come to church and read the Bible and I just follow along. But when I'm by myself, I have no real interest in any of this. I would rather practice a hobby or stay entertained. Number three, I see faith as the careful following of rules. It's kind of being like a good citizen or a good expat. If the law of the land prohibits something, I don't do it. And if it requires something, I do it. What more could God ask from me? Number four, I love spiritual experiences. And Christianity provides a lot of that. The comforting words of a preacher, promising that God will always take care of me, singing to enchanting music with a community of friends. It doesn't get any better than this. Number five, I think Christ is a great example to follow, especially his ethic of love, but I don't always agree with the Bible, especially when it comes to things like God's wrath and the need for an atoning sacrifice. I think it's an ancient way of thinking and living that needs revising to keep up with our modern progressive world. Number six, the proper place for the practice of faith is the church or during family or personal worship, but it has no bearing on how I do my job or relate to other people. And finally, my faith and my good works are a point of pride in my life. I am better than those who do not believe. I am better than those who do not do good things. I'm certainly better because of my faith. If any of this or a combination of these things describe your concept of faith, Friend, James is saying to you, you have a problem. You have the problem of dead faith. You need repentance. You need to come to Christ. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's, it's just some of the things that people say when they hold a dead faith. And what does a dead person need? Listen to the words of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He, has not come into he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Come now to the living Christ. He's the only one who can give you living, justifying faith. He's the only one who can give you a faith that will manifest itself in a life of good works and a life of holiness for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we do not know our own hearts. Sin and Satan cloud our judgment as to what our real condition is. But we thank you for your word and for the work of the Holy Spirit who can shine the light of true faith into our darkness and of true knowledge and save us from our own self-deception. Will you speak a word of life into the hearts of those here who have never truly trusted you as Lord and Savior? 
Will you help us all manifest our faith in your lordship and in your grace by being like Jesus who walked about doing good to all those who are around him? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.